Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. As you've been hearing on the news, residential school survivors are now speaking out about their personal experiences, their memories, after an estimated 751 unmarked graves were discovered at the former Indian Residential School in Saskatchewan, one of the school's leaders of the Coessis First Nation. That's about 160 kilometres east of Regina, confirmed that number yesterday, saying, though, they don't know if we're talking about the graves of children. We don't know exactly who has been discovered. Joining me now to talk a bit more about what is happening in Saskatchewan is Joe Scarapelli, global news reporter who is based in Regina. Joe, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, What kind of reaction are you hearing as people learn more about this discovery and about what is being found at the site of the former Marivelle Indian Residential School? Well, we're hearing, uh, you know, it's a a mix of emotions, a wide range anger, disbelief, sadness. People want uh, answers. And there are, um, you know, there's a a, a belief out there that there are going to be many more discoveries. And people want, uh, people want answers, and they want some kind of justice. And what that looks like uh, kind of remains to be seen at this point, but people want, uh, they want help, they want uh, answers, and they want to be, they want to be heard. Do you get the impression that while it's absolutely horrible and and nobody can disagree with that, do you get the impression that it's a different sense or a different reaction to what was found in B.C., finding a a burial site in B.C., whereas this is more, we're talking about unmarked graves. Do, Do you get the sense from people that you're talking to that it makes any difference? No one really pointed that out to me. The uh, the, the difference, um, I guess, of the uh, the unmarked graves. What does seem a little different to me, uh, just by uh, talking to some uh, some people uh, out on the, the streets here and some uh, people, uh, some First Nations leaders, it's basically that the, the the Kamloops was kind of that big initial shock, and now this, although people were expecting it. Nobody can be prepared for it. So it's, you know, it's, it's that weird kind of when you're expecting something, but when it, you just can never be fully prepared. It's just, just, uh, it's, it's still hitting people like a ton of bricks. It's a, it's a, it's tough news to digest right now, but uh, they're, and they're just bracing for, for more potentially. And when you talk about justice and what people are calling for, I know there's also been talk of of marking these graves at the very least, making sure that is done. Uh, Are there other plans at this point or what else is being discussed that you're hearing about uh, as far as what is the next step when something like this, like you said, it's 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 now that we've located now that this has been located. What are you hearing as far as what will be the next steps? So right now they they just have some flags marking the uh, marking the that estimated 751, and there is a, a, a team that's going to be 
Uh, and we say estimated because the uh, the technology used has a 10 to 15 percent uh, margin of error, and uh, they're just in uh, phase one right now. So we're hoping in the coming weeks to get uh, an exact number. And once uh, once that happens, there's going to be they're hoping to uh, to identify. And there are growing calls uh, you know, on the government and the, the Catholic Church to hand over any documents or records to help with identify identification and causes of, of death but it's very important that uh, that they uh, figure out the names and uh, and they they recognize uh, and and honor the the uh, people who have been found uh, getting documents has been an issue in the past as well has there been any confirmation or any talk of the documents in this case being handed over in a timely way uh, we haven't heard anything about uh, uh, a, a timeline or, um, or or how close uh, or how close they are, but we do know that uh, they're uh, they are pushing for it, and uh, it sounds like they're going to be pushing uh, pressing pretty hard to get their hands on uh, on anything they can. And we know as well from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, as far as the number, the thousands of children that are known to have died while attending residential schools, in this particular case, do we know if we're talking about unmarked graves of children, unmarked graves of adults, do we know anything more about who it is that has been discovered? Well, at this site, um, it's, uh, it's believed it could be both adults and uh, children. Not, not, that hasn't been confirmed, but uh, they, uh, they, uh, they, they're not too sure exactly the identities of, any, of anybody, but they did say yesterday to believe that uh, it's not just children. There, uh, there could potentially be, uh, be adults. But uh, at this point, it's still uh, speculation, and we're waiting for, for confirmation. All right, Joe, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much. I know you're following up on this. Thank you so much for taking some time and for talking with us this morning. Of course, thank you. That is Joe Scarapelli. He is a reporter with Global News based in Regina. And a reminder, we know the information and material can trigger unpleasant feelings or thoughts of past abuse. If you need help, there is a 24-hour residential school crisis line. That number is 1-866-925-4419. We are continuing now to talk about a search that is taking place, as you've heard, and we've been talking about this on the program, the discovery, the location of more than 750 bodies in where the site of the former Maryville Residential School was located near Regina. Let's talk now to Eldon Yellowhorn, a professor of First Nations Studies and Archaeology at SFU, talking about the technology that is being used in these types of searches. Professor, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? Oh, I'm fine. Having my first cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. Very good. Um, can you talk a bit? I know you've been involved in other searches and using this technology. Can you explain a bit what exactly is being used? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, what we refer to these, uh, there's a whole suite of them, uh, methods that we refer to as uh, near-surface remote sensing. And, and this can be as simple as, say, using a, a metal detector. You know, a metal you sweep across uh, an area and this is, often, this is often very good for uh, doing historical archaeology because then metals come into the material culture and uh, they get deposited into the ground so we can find those. But, uh, of course, a metal detector doesn't tell you if you found a, 
a gold coin or a rusty nail. It just gives you an indication. Uh, and, and the one that uh, people have become most familiar with recently is the uh, ground-penetrating radar. And this is the uh, same principle that is, is at work for air traffic control or uh, when uh, radar is used for weather uh, prediction. So uh, it's in, instead of uh, broadcasting the signals out into the uh, atmosphere, you, you take the radar and you turn it downward into the ground. And if you know the um, kind of soil or the kind of matrix in which you're doing the uh, radar, you send a, a pulse from the uh, machine into the ground, and it, it'll have a little antenna on it as well, so it'll it'll detect the signals that bounce back from the ground. And, and as you're moving along, you know, you have a, an undisturbed matrix, let's say, so you'll get a certain signal. But then anytime you come to a, a break in that matrix that has been a, a result of uh, the soil being disrupted, now the soil has a different density than the soil around it. So it'll detect that area where there has been a, a disruption in the uh, pattern of the matrix and it'll send you a signal so it records an anomaly and so what it does it tells you is that this anomaly merits further study uh, and that's but again you know like uh, just with the metal like with the metal detector you can't determine what it is just based on the signal you know if you, if you really want to do ground truthing of course you have to then peel away the ground and uh, look at what you're uh, what you're finding underneath the, with the signal that you're co that's coming back to you. And is that how, where with just kind of the initial finding in this case, those they're able to say that it's an estimated 751 unmarked graves, but it will take more study. Well, what they're what they're picking up are anomalies okay. at this stage. So each anomaly, you know that, and then of course. Uh, because this is the beginning of, this would be the preliminary stages of your research. So then you would usually typically follow it up using other methods to uh, give you greater confidence in your observations. Uh, so, for example, um, another another method that people find extremely popular or useful in, in these situations is uh, uh, aerial drone survey. Uh, because if you fly over an area, oftentimes you'll pick up details that are not evident to you while you're standing on the ground. And typically you do these uh, drone surveys at different times of day, like in the early morning or the mid-afternoon or in the evening at different times, because the light conditions change. And as the light conditions change, you'll pick up different types of uh, reflections off the vegetation. Uh, Another another method that was very good in this type of situation is one called gradiometry, and gradiometry itself uh, measures the uh, magnetic fabric of the uh, of the soil or of the matrix that you're digging into. And any time there has been a dip disruption that has been a result of uh, terrain alteration, where somebody's dug into the ground, it'll reset the magnetic fabric. So that'll uh, that'll appear as an anomaly, and uh, you know, you know, if if even a, a fire that's been on the surface, like somebody makes a bonfire on the surface of the soil, without doing any terrain alteration, that also will uh, disrupt the the magnetic fabric at the near the surface. So 
each time you get something like this, it, it registers as, as an anomaly, and you, but you, you do also develop uh, more confidence in what you're, uh, what you're observing. All and right. also, you know, another another one is just like looking at looking at uh, historical uh, cultural patterns. You know, because uh, in in your typical Christian cemetery, uh, the graves will always be aligned east west with the uh, with the headstone or the head on the on the west side of the grave and the feet on the east side. Uh, and of course, we're living in a more secular time, so uh, we don't really observe that. Uh, pattern, but in a historic cemetery like this, in all likelihood, it would be following that pattern, too. All right. Uh, Professor, we'll have to leave it there. We're right out of time, but thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much for calling. All right. That is Eldon Yellowhorn, Professor of First Nations Studies and Archaeology at SFU. Now, we're taking a look at what one Surrey City Councillor says she will do when the council meets on Monday. Linda Annis saying she will do a First Nations land acknowledgement, even if the mayor refuses to do one as an entire council. So, joining us to talk more about this is Musqueam Chief Wayne Sparrow. Chief Sparrow, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good morning. How important is it for councils, city councils, to do land acknowledgements? I think it's very important. You know, with all the uh, uh, issues that have been arising in the last uh, few weeks, um, just a uh, very simple acknowledgement of the lands that uh, you're on goes a long way with building relationships, uh, partnerships, and trust with, uh, from government to government. Uh, in this case, talking about Surrey, which is a large city, the mayor who also chairs the police board, from what we understand, when the police board meets, there is a land acknowledgement made by Doug McCallum, but for whatever reason, he's not uh, agreeing to do this at council. What's your response to that? I don't know. I don't know what his personal uh, issue is when it comes to city council. I think uh, some of the questions would have to be directed directly to him of what he, why he's hesitant to to acknowledge uh, the land that uh, his council and his city's on is something that I think he would have to address himself. I, I, I'm really lost for words of why he would not do that. You know, here in, in Musqueam, uh, Mayor Robertson uh, started that when we went back to the 2010, and it's not just acknowledgement. We now have face-to-face council-to-council meetings. We, we address some of the concerns that are arising in our community and in the city of Vancouver. And then we've expanded um, with Musqueam. It has over 40 village sites in the lower mainland. We've expanded to city-to-city uh, mayor uh, meetings with New Westminster and Delta in the last year, to, uh, last couple of years. So uh, I don't know. Um, that's a... a Good question that we have to address with him, I guess. And, and you raise that as an example of the collaboration that can come, the good that can come from doing this. Is there a concern when a land acknowledgement, say, is forced or it becomes policy, that if you're forcing someone to do it, A, it, perhaps it's not genuine? Or is there also a concern that someone might make a land acknowledgement and, and think, okay, great, my work is done, and not continue working? Yeah, I think uh, that might be that might be part of it. I think um, there's always hesitancy, uh, especially when it comes to municipalities, because you know, with First Nations, um, the the duty to consult and accommodate, and uh, those are uh, left with the federal and provincial government. That may be one of his uh, issues that he arise because municipalities, but 
um, like I said earlier, um, the, when when we meet, uh, it's not just about the acknowledgement; it's about the uh, partnership. So that that may be maybe one. I similar with the residential with the Pope; he doesn't want to apologize, and our leadership in in uh, Canada and BC have been pushing for that, and uh, it's the same thing. They for some reason they don't want to acknowledge or they don't want to. Uh, an apology. Hmm. Uh, this is a, a bit off topic as well, but I'm curious uh, your take on the tweet that was sent to Jody Wilson-Raybould by Carolyn Bennett. Uh, some are now calling for her resignation, saying that the, uh, sorry, not the tweet, the message that was sent, saying that uh, it was a racist message. Do you think Carolyn Bennett needs to resign? I can't, wouldn't prefer me to speak. I, I haven't seen the tweet. I just actually heard it on, on the radio this morning. So I haven't um, been privy to be able to see the tweet or the or the comments that were made by Minister Bennett or uh, the response from Jody. So be unfair for me to comment. Sorry, I, I haven't seen the tweet yet. No, that's absolutely okay. I kind of threw that at you yeah, just yeah. as a as something that happened late last night or that was reported on last night. Chief Sparrow, always great to chat with you. Thank you so much for coming on the program. We'll talk to you again soon. I'm sure. Thank you. Have a good day. Okay, you too. That is uh, Musqueam Chief Wayne Sparrow talking about land acknowledgements. And again, uh, Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis saying she will do a land acknowledgement at the next council meeting, even if the mayor of Surrey doesn't join in. We're going to talk more now about the Vancouver Police Department and the issue of systemic racism. That was front and centre at yesterday's police board meeting. This was the first meeting since Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, who chairs the board, stepped down as board spokesperson after calling out what he said was an indefensible lack of action on systemic racism. The board has now announced that it is launching a major review of VPD policies when it comes to equity inclusion and diversity. Let's bring in Markeel Simpson, an anti, uh, anti-racism activist. Markeel, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, what is your response first? The news of, of the launch of the major review. This is the Vancouver Police Department saying that all policies are going to be reviewed. That is looking at the 1,000 page procedure and regulations manual. Do you have any confidence or do you think that could make a difference? I think it's important that the foundation that the VPD and the VPB operate from recognizes the existence of systemic racism within the forces um, and to, can take an anti-racist approach from that foundation. And as long as the chief of police isn't willing to admit that systemic racism exists, I'm not sure how effective um, those new programs are going to be. You uh, were um, one of the voices at the police board meeting. We've been hearing other voices on the news today as well. People who spoke to the board talked about this. Do you get the impression or do you think that those concerns are being taken seriously? I believe so. I think that the board is likely reflecting on the words of members of the public coming forward and mounting pressure um, on them as well from the mayor of Vancouver. Um, to take action now, because uh, the situation just is untenable at this rate. And when you say take action, then, what would you like to see? Well, I'd like to see the Vancouver Police Board recognize systemic racism um, within the board, within the police department, and ask the same of its employees, um, especially the chief of police. And if the chief of police is unwilling to do so, um, then it 
might be time for new leadership. You'd like to see him resign? Well, I'd like to see uh, either a position change or a resignation uh, just because of the times that we're living in. You know, systemic racism is real. It's in all of our institutions. And we're hearing this from all levels of leadership, uh, especially from elected leaders. And that's the interesting thing about the Vancouver Police Board is that other than the mayor, they're all appointed by the province. And so it's really important that they respect um, the will of the people, especially as they're represented on the board, such as the mayor. And so um, if the chief of police is refusing to acknowledge systemic racism, then a resignation or relieving him of his duties may be in order. Uh, we've also heard, and this was in a report from Post Media, uh, saying that an executive with the Vancouver Police Union uh, launched a complaint against the mayor, against Kennedy Stewart, over those comments on systemic racism and actually went to and claimed that those particular comments have created a toxic work environment at the VPD. What is your response to that? Yeah, it's really concerning when we see members of the force going public with their concerns, and especially using the Vancouver Police Board to air a workplace complaint. Um, the sergeant in question knows better. He knows that there's a, a, a chain of command, and there's also a strong police union to air your work grievances. And it's, it's really um, an affront to our public institutions for him to go to the police board, the same place that members of the public, such as myself, go to, seeking accountability and to improve our systems. And so, um, to me, when I see that, it's telling me that members of the force are feeling emboldened by the leadership of the chief of police and digging, entrenching his thoughts on systemic racism. What do you say then to, and I know we heard this at the board yesterday, one of the speakers said there are groups, there are, are people who are frightened to call 911 because of perhaps past interactions or they've heard stories on the news, uh, perhaps uh, of, of police uh, interactions that, that scares them. So we've heard from people in that position, but we also hear from people as well that have very positive interactions with Vancouver police and would speak very highly of them. Uh, how do you kind of put those two things together? Or how do we get to a place where we, we don't have people who are afraid to call 911? Well, I think that it's going to be a long path to healing those relationships with uh, marginalized groups and groups that have been disproportionately negatively impacted by the police department and its policies, such as street checks. Um, there's been trauma done, and it's going to take a recognition and an effort by the person uh, or the group that has perpetrated that trauma in order to uh, go forward on a basis of mutual understanding. And so I think that, um, again, acknowledging that there's a problem uh, is the first step. And so that's why we're hoping that um, either the chief will recognize systemic racism and its existence or the police board will take action to do so. All right. We'll have to leave it there. We're right out of time this morning. Mark Eel, thank you so much, though, for coming on the program and for talking more about this. Thank you, Jill.
All right. Markiel Simpson is an anti-racism advocate talking about the police board meeting that took place yesterday and as well the Vancouver police launching a review. That is going to be a review of all VPD policies when it comes to things such as equity, inclusion and diversity. Well, earlier this week, we were chatting with Norm Lipinski. He is the chief of the Surrey Police Service. He was talking about being at the helm for six months, still saying that he hopes to have some boots on the ground this fall and also talked about how the force will be working with IHIT with the homicide investigation team and a smooth transition hopefully from the RCMP could this though lead to some form of a regional police force well joining me to talk more about that is former BC Attorney General Wally Opal thank you so much for being with us Always good to be with you, Jill. Uh, You've been talking about regional policing for years. I know it was part of the Picton report. You chaired the Picton inquiry. What are your thoughts? Is it still possible, do you think, that BC could see a regional force? Well, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. If you look at our present system of policing, uh, Jill, it really makes no sense. You look at the map. You've got uh, West Vancouver has their own police force next door, North, they have the RCMP. South of that, they have their VPD has a municipal municipal force. Uh, south of the river, the RCMP. Then you got Delta. So all the different management structures and the different bureaucracies uh, make no sense. And the other thing is that we found this out in Picton. There's a lack of sharing of information. Now, since Picton took place, they have corrected a lot of the barriers to communication. But nevertheless... With different police forces, they still exist. And uh, so it really makes no sense to have the the different uh, policing agencies that we have. I mean, you saw the recent shooting in uh, at the Vancouver airport where the car that was apparently used was dumped in Surrey. So people have gone through three jurisdictions uh, and found a relevant piece of evidence. So, so what it is is that people who commit crimes don't respect geographical boundaries. It makes no sense. So I think in time, uh, they will think about, the the provincial government will think about it, and I know that they've given it a lot of thought, but the the real issue here is it's a political issue uh, because uh, uh, is the provincial government going to impose a system of policing upon a city that doesn't want it? For instance, Delta is very happy with with their police department, so the provincial government is in a difficult position wherein if they bring in regional policing and uh, Delta does not want it, then you're imposing a system of policing upon a democratically elected council. So those are some of the complex issues, but the present system, which has been called a, a patchwork, really makes no logical sense. Do you think there's a benefit in communities for having either the RCMP or a civic force? Well, I think, I think the RCMP have done an excellent job in the province as the provincial police force. But I, I think Surrey's done the right thing because Surrey is now going to be the largest city in the province within about five years. And it makes no sense for Surrey to have a police force such as the RCMP that's governed from Ottawa. Governance is perhaps the most important element of policing. And, uh, That's an argument that's seldom used when they're talking about the pros and cons of the new Surrey Police Department, and that is governance, the management structure. Where is it governed from? Where is it managed from? 
And uh, while the RCMP operationally, I think, have done a good job in this province, the fact is police forces have to be accountable to local authorities and they have to be governed locally. And from that perspective, uh, the, the independent Surrey police force makes a lot of sense. But that doesn't mean that having a Surrey police force will be an impediment to a regional police force that's governed uh, throughout the Lower Mainland. It makes more sense to have one regional police force with, with um, all due respect and to uh, input from the local municipalities. Uh, Darlene Bennett, whose husband was gunned down in their driveway three years ago, she is behind a petition, an initiative, a refer- to have a binding referendum on switching to the Surrey police force. One of her main concerns is because it's been an RCMP file, she's worried that it could fall through the cracks. So she's worried about what's going to happen to the investigation once Surrey switches to the Surrey police force. What do you think, what would you say to her in that, about those concerns? Well, I, I sympathize with her being in, in her situation. Having said that, that can't happen. Uh, we spent six months. I was the head of the transition committee. The purpose of the transition committee was to have map out a plan. It's a complex plan wherein the people, will, the, force, the forces will be working together and uh, so that there'll be uh, a cooperation of files, cooperation of prosecutions. And the worst thing that can happen is for something to fall through the cracks, and that can't happen, particularly something as important as a homicide. So I would expect that the RCMP, being as professional as they are, will work together with the um, new Surrey Police Service, and they'll share the information, and they'll share their investigative talents. So, So I don't think that can happen. In in the meantime, while we don't have regional policing, would it make a difference, do you think, if all police agencies in the province were part of IHIT? Because right now, IHIT does have some police services that are part of it. Vancouver's not. Would that, would that be another step or be well, helpful? Yeah, you know what? That's an excellent question, excellent point that you've made. The fact that Vancouver is not even a part of IHIT uh, tells you what the limitations of IHIT are. If there was a regional police force, there would be one unit that would be investigating all of those all of those killings and all of those crimes. And uh, Vancouver, for whatever reason, has chosen not to be a part of it, and uh, that weakens the overall concept of IHIT. And and I would imagine too that wouldn't be like you said. It's one thing to impose a regional force, and you'd be imposing that perhaps uh, in jurisdictions where they didn't want it. Uh, but would it be different? Do you think if it was imposed that police forces you must be part of IHIT? Well, I I think the uh, I think that could be done. But again, if the uh, solicitor general chose to do that, uh, it would be difficult because you're then interfering with the managerial duties of the Vancouver Police Department. The Vancouver Police Department, I'm sure, for rational and logical reasons, has, agree- has uh, agreed not to be a part of IHIT. And I'm not going to question their reason for doing that. But the fact is, uh, if there was a regional police force, there would not be a necessity for IHIT. All the, the police forces in the lower, main, lower Mainland would be working together. So you wouldn't need all the various agencies. Uh, You would have a homicide uh, section, a robbery section, sex assault sections, and all of those things that now exist within uh, policing agencies. Uh, I don't think it makes any sense for uh, 
all the different police departments to to have their own sex assaults sections. Uh, there's a lot of information that can be shared. A classic example, and you you opened with this, of the Picton Inquiry. The Picton Inquiry showed us that had there been regional policing in 1997, Picton would have been apprehended in 1997 instead of 2002 because the RCMP had relevant information to do uh, at their hands that Picton gave them and uh, the woman who he attacked gave them. And had that information been conveyed to the Vancouver police, a lot of lot of um, lives would have been saved. Keep in mind that what ha- happening in uh, in uh, Picton was the women were being taken from the downtown east side, an area policed by the Vancouver police, and being murdered in Coquitlam, Port Coquitlam, where the women were being murdered by an area policed by the RCMP. And they don't always share information, and they didn't in this case. And in every serial killer that we've examined and studied, there's always been this impediment of sharing information due to a lack of a regional type of structure. Look at the Bernardo case was a classic example, Ontario, Clifford Olson, the Green River killer. They all they all involved multiple policing agencies that didn't share the necessary information. All right. We'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. But thank you so much for joining us. Always good to be with you, Joan. All right, that is former BC Attorney General Wally Opal talking about regional policing. We want to take a look at a federal government decision. The federal government saying it wants to ban most flavored vaping products in a bid to reduce their appeal to young people. Health Canada put forward some draft regulations that would restrict all e-cigarette flavors except tobacco, mint, and menthol. The department saying in a news release, the proposed changes would make vaping less enticing to youth while still providing options for smokers who are looking to switch to an alternative source of nicotine. Well, joining us on the line now to talk more about this is Eric Gagnon, Vice President of Corporate and Regulatory Affairs for Imperial Tobacco Canada. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, what is your response to uh, the Health Canada regulations? Well, the first reaction is we're disappointed. Uh, we believe that by banning most of the flavors, um, it's going to make the vaping products less appealing to adult consumers who are trying to get away from tobacco. Um, and, and, you know, probably what's going to happen is that the people who have been vaping fruits uh, flavors are, might go back to smoking. So, from a public health perspective, uh, we don't believe that that is going to achieve the uh, the stated objective. On the other hand, there is a youth vaping issue in Canada, and we need to address it. Uh, but we don't believe that by you know banning most of the flavors, uh, that that should be the way to do it. So, what would be a better way then to deal with youth vaping? Well, uh, you know, like many other things, kids uh, get to a point where they uh, experiment. And, uh, you know, Health Canada research and has always demonstrated that education um, and, and awareness is the best thing to do. The other problem is we need to understand where kids are getting these products and the people who are selling illegal products to youth uh, should be penalized very harshly. Uh, we've been advocating this for a number of months now, um, and we believe that uh, that is probably the best thing to do uh, uh, rather than do prohibition. You know, if, if some youth are vaping um, and the products become illegal, uh, the concern is that, the, you know, it's going to be a dark market and kids are going to get access to it anyway. So um, that's why we've been advocating for uh, awareness um, and, and more education campaigns, but also to uh, to identify who's selling these products to youth and, and to penalize them in a harsh way. Uh, 
What about the issue when it comes to the amount of nicotine that are that is in the vaping products? Yeah, so that has always actually this is not draft regulation. This is final regulation. So Canada has imposed the nicotine ceiling uh, without getting too technical. So 20 milligram per milliliter. Uh, initially in Canada, it was much higher than that. It was, it was 66 milligram per milliliter. The problem with that regulation is that Canada is a high nicotine market for cigarettes. So the people who are switching from cigarettes to vaping products, they need high nicotine products, right? And uh, in order to get their satisfaction and they get their, get their nicotine. So by reducing the amount of nicotine in the vape products, the concern, again, here is the same thing, is that consumers who are smoking will try vaping products. They won't be satisfied with the products, and they will go back to cig- smoking cigarettes. So what we're trying to do here is, you know, obviously we, we continue to sell cigarettes, but the government of Canada has been, um, wants to reduce smoking incidents below 5% by 2035. We believe we can actually achieve that objective before 2035. But in order to do that, we are putting less harmful alternatives to, uh, products on the market, like vaping products. But the government needs to put a regulatory framework in place that will meet the consumer demands and, and actually will satisfy the consumers who are trying to switch from cigarettes to less harmful alternatives. Do you do research then, or do you know how many smokers or the demand for the fruit flavors and the flavors that are being taken away because of being more attractive to young people? Is there a high demand in adult smokers who switch to vaping? Yes, there is. There's a lot of research. Uh, we do ourselves, but a lot of health groups have been advocating and asking the, the government not to ban fruit flavors. You need to, and then the listeners need to understand that when you're a smoker um, and you want to get away from cigarette, what the, the one thing you want to do is you want to get away from the tobacco taste, right? Um, and a lot of consumers ha- uh, are using fruit flavors and are not using tobacco, mint, and menthol. So I think that that's the, the challenge that the Health Canada is faced with now, right? So again, you know, we need to address the youth issue but it's not by making the product less appealing to adult consumers that that's going to reach the objective of reducing smoking in Canada. And, and that's what we have and will continue to advocate for because now there's a consultation period for 75 days. And hopefully, uh, Health Canada, we will reconsider this position because we believe it will have a negative impact on public health. So there's research then, I would guess, that backs up that even if smokers are offered the tobacco flavor or the mint flavor or the menthol, that's not exactly what a lot of smokers are hoping for or, or looking for? There is, and there's groups uh, like uh, Rights for Vapors is a, a consumer group, uh, and they have done some research with consumers across Canada. And you can clearly see that the vast majority of the consumers are using fruit flavors, Right. Um, and the same thing a little bit with the nicotine uh, ceiling that we were talking earlier. What we see is a lot of the, the vast majority of the consumer, not the vast majority to be fair, but a lot of the consumers are coming at a higher level of nicotine. And then through time, they go down with nicotine level and some of them all actually go all the way down to zero nicotine. So this is just what Health Canada needs to consider before introducing um, excessive measures that will have a negative impact for adult consumers. Again, I think the objective is the right one. How do we make these products and how do we make sure that these products do not fall in the hands of youth, but while allowing them to meet the uh, demand for consumers that want to switch from 
cigarettes to uh, vaping products. I know some other provinces have already banned those types of vaping flavors. In BC, I think, the the vaping products are only sold in age-restricted stores, or that, that's been brought in to try and stop selling the products to young people. Do you think that's enough? Well, you know, what BC did is a little bit like Ontario. It's a mitigated position. So instead of uh, decline, instead of uh, banning all the flavors, what they did is they allow only tobacco, mint and menthol in convenience stores where kids have access, but flavors are allowed in adult-only locations like vape shops. So at least the, the, the product is still available for the adults that want to have fruit flavors. If you take a province like Nova Scotia, who has banned everything, which is only tobacco flavors, we have seen an increase in smoking and uh, in, in cigarette sales when the ban was introduced, right? So that's what we have to be careful. If, you know, vaping is a less harmful alternative to smoking. You have credible health groups around the world, including Health Canada and even Public Health England, who continue to say that vaping is 95% safer than smoking cigarette, right? And the debate is all around the nicotine. So we know that nicotine... Uh, may create an addiction, but it's not what causes what causes the health risks associated with smoking. So when you're able to deliver the nicotine in a less harmful way, you prevent a lot of the uh, risk associated with smoking. And that's what we as a company were trying to do by putting these products on the market. But you need to have the regulatory framework in place that will, you know, allow the consumers to transition and stick with these less harmful alternatives. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Eric, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. Thanks for having me. All right. That is Eric Gagnon, Vice President, Corporate and Regulatory Affairs for Imperial Tobacco Canada.